PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to this PTJ podcast. PTJ is the official publication of the American Physical Therapy Association. PTJ disseminates basic and applied science related to physical therapy, contributes evidence to guide clinical decision-making, and publishes scholarly perspectives from around the world. And now, your host, Donovan Stutel. Welcome to PTJ's Audio Abstracts for April 2008. This month's research reports focus on resistance exercise training for people with knee osteoarthritis, peroneal nerve stimulation, prediction of falls in elderly people, lower limb strength after vibration training, inflammatory myelopathies and traumatic spinal cord lesions, spinal mobilization in nonspecific low back pain, Pilates exercise in women with breast cancer, and running training after stroke. This month's case report describes four patients with chronic heart failure and their responses to a novel rehabilitation program. For clinical summaries of this issue and e-letters to the editor, visit www.ptjournal.org. First this month, Investigation of Clinical Effects of High and Low Resistance Training for Patients with Knee Osteoarthritis, a Randomized Controlled Trial, by Mei Hua Jian, Dr. Zhu Zheng Lin, Dr. Jian Zhang Liao, Dr. Yong Fu Lin, and Dr. Da Han Lin. This abstract is presented by Dave Corboisier. Muscle strength training is important for people with knee osteoarthritis. High-resistance exercise has been demonstrated to be more beneficial than low-resistance exercise for young subjects. The purpose of this study was to compare the effects of high- and low-resistance strength training in elderly subjects with knee osteoarthritis. 102 subjects were randomly assigned to groups that received one of the following. Eight weeks of high-resistance exercise, eight weeks of low-resistance exercise, or no exercise. Pain, function, walking time, and muscle torque were examined before and after intervention. Significant improvement for all measures was observed in both exercise groups. There was no significant difference in any measures between the high-resistance and the low-resistance exercise groups. However, based on effect size between the exercise and control groups, the high-resistance exercise group improved more than the low-resistance exercise group. Both high-resistance and low-resistance strength training significantly improved clinical effects in this study. For people with mild to moderate knee osteoarthritis, the effects of high-resistance strength training appear to be larger than those of low-resistance strength training, although the differences between the high-resistance and low-resistance exercise groups were not statistically significant. Lead author Mei Hua Jian is an associate professor at the Medical College in the School and Graduate Institute of Physical Therapy at National Taiwan University and in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at National Taiwan University Hospital in Taipei, Taiwan. Next, therapeutic effect of an implantable peroneal nerve stimulator in subjects with chronic stroke and foot drop, a randomized controlled trial. By Anke Kotink, Dr. Herme Hermans, Dr. Anod Nene, 
Martin Tenechlo, Dr. Katharina Krotis-Udzhorn, and Dr. Martin Eisermann. The term foot drop is characterized by a person's inability to raise the foot at the ankle. Foot drop is a common problem in patients with stroke. A randomized controlled trial was performed to determine the therapeutic effect of using a new, implantable, two-channel peroneal nerve stimulator for six months versus an ankle foot orthosis. Twenty-nine patients with chronic stroke and foot drop participated in the study. The mean time from stroke was seven years, and all subjects were community ambulators. The study used a randomized controlled trial design. The functional electrical stimulation group received the implantable stimulation system for correction of their foot drop. The control group continued using their conventional walking device, such as ankle foot orthosis or orthopedic shoes or no walking device. All subjects were measured at baseline and at weeks 4, 8, 12, and 26 in the GATE laboratory. The following were selected as primary outcome measures. The therapeutic effect of functional electrical stimulation on the maximum value of the root mean square of the tibialis anterior muscle with both flexed and extended knees and walking speed. The following were selected as secondary outcome measures. The root mean square maximum of the peroneus longus, gastrocnemius, and soleus muscles with both flexed and extended knees and muscle activity of the tibialis anterior muscle of the affected leg during the swing phase of gait. A significantly higher root mean square maximum of the tibialis anterior muscle with extended knee was found after using functional electrical stimulation. No change in walking speed was found when the stimulator was not switched on. A significantly increased root mean square maximum of the gastrocnemius muscle with both flexed and extended knees was found after using functional electrical stimulation. Functionally, no therapeutic effect of implantable peroneal nerve stimulation was found. However, the significantly increased voluntary muscle output of the tibialis anterior and gastrocnemius muscles after the use of functional electrical stimulation suggests that there was a certain extent of plasticity in the subjects in this study. Lead author Anka Kotink is a human movement scientist at Rusin Research and Development in Inschede, the Netherlands. Next, use of the Berg Balance Scale for predicting multiple falls in community-dwelling elderly people, a prospective study, by Susan Muir, Dr. Catherine Berg, Dr. Bert Chesworth, and Dr. Mark Speechley. Falls are a significant public health concern for older adults. Early identification of people at high risk for falling facilitates the provision of rehabilitation treatment to reduce future fall risk. To examine the predictive ability of the Berg Balance Scale, this prospective cohort study used sensitivity, specificity, receiver operating characteristic curves, area under the curve, and likelihood ratios. There were three types of outcomes. The any fall outcome for one or more falls, the multiple falls outcome for two or more falls, and the injurious falls outcome. A sample of 210 community-dwelling older adults received a comprehensive geriatric assessment at baseline. 
The assessment included the Berg Balance Scale to measure balance. Data on prospective falls were collected monthly for one year. The predictive validity of the Berg Balance Scale for the identification of future fall risk was evaluated. The Berg Balance Scale had good discriminative ability to predict multiple falls when receiver operating characteristic analysis was used. However, the use of the Berg Balance Scale as a dichotomous scale with a threshold of 45 or less was inadequate for the identification of the majority of people at risk for falling in the future, with sensitivities of 25% for any fall and 45% for multiple falls. The use of likelihood ratios maintaining the Berg Balance Scale as a multi-level scale demonstrated a gradient of risk across scores with fall risk increasing as scores decreased. The use of the Berg Balance Scale as a dichotomous scale to identify people at high risk for falling should be discouraged because it fails to identify the majority of such people. The predictive validity of this scale for multiple falls is superior to that for other types of falls, and the use of likelihood ratios preserves the gradient of risk across the whole range of scores. Susan Muir is a Ph.D. candidate in the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry at the University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario, Canada. Effects of whole body vibration exercise on lower extremity muscle strength and power in an older population. A randomized clinical trial by Sven Rees, Dr. Aaron Murphy, and Dr. Mark Watsford. Vibration training is a relatively new exercise intervention. This study investigated the effects of vibration exercise on strength and power in older adults who are healthy. 30 participants with a mean age of 74 years, were randomly assigned to a vibration exercise training group or an exercise without vibration training group. The interventions consisted of three sessions per week for eight weeks. Outcome measures included isokinetic flexor and extensor strength and power of the hip, knee, and ankle. The vibration training group significantly improved ankle plantar flexor strength and power compared with the exercise without vibration training group. However, there were no significant differences between the groups for knee flexor or extensor strength. Vibration training contributed to an increase in plantar flexor strength and power. However, the strength gains were comparable for the knee and hip flexors and extensors for both the vibration training group and the exercise without vibration training group. Future vibration protocols should explore different body positions to target muscles higher up on the leg. Lead author Sven Rees is a Ph.D. candidate in the School of Leisure, Sport and Tourism at the University of Technology at Sydney, Kooringai Campus, in Linfield, North South Wales, Australia. Next, inflammatory myelopathies and traumatic spinal cord lesions, comparison of functional and neurological outcomes by Dr. Giorgio Scivoletto, Dr. Elena Cosentino, Dr. Alessia Mamone, and Dr. Marco Molinari. 
Outcomes knowledge is essential to answer patients' questions regarding function, to plan the use of resources, and to evaluate treatments to enhance recovery. The purpose of this study was to compare the outcomes of patients with traumatic spinal cord injury, SCI, with those of patients with inflammatory spinal cord lesions. The authors evaluated 181 subjects with traumatic SCI and 67 subjects with inflammatory spinal cord lesions. Using a matching cohorts procedure, 38 subjects were selected from each group. The measures used were the American Spinal Injury Association Impairment Scale, the Barthel Index, the Rivermead Mobility Index, and the Walking Index for Spinal Cord Injury. The subjects in the inflammatory spinal cord lesions group were older than those in the SCI group with a longer interval from onset of lesion to rehabilitation admission and with more incomplete lesions. In the matching cohorts, at admission, the traumatic SCI group had scores comparable to those of the inflammatory spinal cord lesions group in the Rivermead Mobility Index and Walking Index for spinal cord injury. But the traumatic SCI group had lower scores on the Barthel Index, indicating that they had a greater dependence on assistance for activities of daily living. At discharge, the two groups had comparable functional outcomes. The neurological status of the two groups was comparable at admission and discharge. These results indicate that at admission, patients with SCI have a greater physical dependence for assistance with activities of daily living than patients with inflammatory spinal cord lesions who have comparable neurological status. Such a difference depends on factors not related to the spinal cord lesion, such as the presence of associated lesions, the need to wear an orthotic device, or the sequelae of surgery. The outcomes of patients with SCI are determined more by factors such as lesion level and severity and age than by etiology. This finding could have implications for healthcare planning and rehabilitation research. Lead author Dr. Giorgio Scivoletto is an assistant physician in the spinal cord unit at the IRCCS Santa Lucia Foundation in Rome, Italy. Next, effects of a single session of posterior to anterior spinal mobilization and press-up exercise on pain response and lumbar spine extension in people with nonspecific low back pain by Dr. Christopher Powers, George Benick, Dr. Cornelia Kulig, Dr. Robert Landell, and Dr. Michael Fredrickson. Posterior to anterior mobilization and press-up exercises are common physical therapy interventions used to treat low back pain. The purpose of this study was to examine the immediate effects of posterior to anterior mobilization and a press-up exercise on pain with standing extension and lumbar extension in people with nonspecific low back pain. The study participants were 19 women and 11 men who were 18 to 45 years of age. All had a diagnosis of nonspecific low back pain. Lumbar segmental extension during a press-up maneuver was measured by dynamic magnetic resonance imaging prior to and immediately following a single session of either posterior to anterior spinal mobilization or a press-up exercise. Pain scores before and after intervention were recorded with a visual analog scale. Differences between the treatment groups in pain and total lumbar extension were compared over time 
by a two-way analysis of variance. Following both interventions, there was a significant reduction in the average pain scores over time for both groups. Similarly, total lumbar extension significantly increased over time in both the posterior to anterior mobilization group and the press-up group. No significant differences over time between the two interventions in pain or lumbar extension were found. The findings of this study support the use of posterior to anterior mobilization and a press-up exercise for improving lumbar extension in people with nonspecific low back pain. Although statistically significant changes in pain were detected within each group, the clinical meaningfulness of these changes is questionable. Lead author Dr. Christopher Powers is an associate professor in the Division of Biokinesiology and Physical Therapy in the School of Dentistry at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, California. Effects of Pilates Exercises on Shoulder Range of Motion, Pain, Mood, and Upper Extremity Function in Women Living with Breast Cancer, a Pilot Study, by Kim Keyes, Dr. Susan Harris, Dr. Joseph Lusishin, and Dr. Donna McIntyre. The purpose of this study was to examine the effects of Pilates exercises on shoulder range of motion, pain, mood, and upper extremity function in four women who had undergone axillary dissection and radiation therapy for stage 1 to 4 breast cancer. A non-concurrent, multiple baseline, single-subject research design was used. Visual analyses of the data suggest a modest effect of the Pilates exercise program in improving shoulder abduction and external rotation range of motion. For the one participant with pre-existing metastatic disease, there was statistically significant improvement in shoulder internal and external rotation in the affected upper extremity. The improving baselines seen for pain, mood, and upper extremity function data made it impossible to assess the effects of Pilates exercises on those outcomes. No adverse events were experienced. Pilates exercises may be an effective and safe exercise option for women who are recovering from breast cancer treatments, but further research is needed. Lead author Kim Keyes is based in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Next, Running Training After Stroke, a Single-Subject Report by Dr. Ellen Miller, Stephanie Coombs, Dr. Karen Fish, Dr. Brooke Bentz, Dr. Amanda Owens, and Andrea Birch. Although many people who have had a stroke are primarily interested in learning to walk, some are able to focus on a return to recreational and sporting activities. This study investigated the feasibility and effectiveness of intensive task-oriented training in the body weight support treadmill environment to improve running for a subject after stroke. The subject was a 38-year-old man who had a stroke two and a half years prior to this study. A single-subject design was conducted with baseline, intervention, immediate post-intervention, and six-month post-intervention phases. Dependent variables included 25-meter sprint time, single-leg balance, running step width, running step length ratio, stroke impact scale, 
six-minute walk test, and lower extremity strength. At the six-month post-intervention phase, the following measures changed significantly from the baseline phase. Sprint speed, left single leg balance, and step width. Step length ratio trended toward less symmetry but more consistency. Muscle strength improved more than 20% in six of eight muscle groups in the involved lower extremity and four of eight muscle groups in the uninvolved lower extremity. Intensive, task-specific training was feasible and effective for retraining running ability in the subject. He returned to recreational running, which provided him with a greatly improved outlook and a better quality of life. Lead author Dr. Ellen Miller is a professor of physical therapy and the executive director at the Center for Aging and Community at the University of Indianapolis in Indianapolis, Indiana. And finally this month, a case report. Group-based aerobic interval training in patients with chronic heart failure. Norwegian Ullevall model. By Bergita Blakstad Nielsen, Brit Hellesnes, Dr. Arne Westheim, and Dr. Majarne Riesberg. The purpose of this case report was to describe the responses of four patients with chronic heart failure to the following novel rehabilitation program. A group-based, high-intensity, interval training program that includes aerobic, resistance, flexibility, and balance activities. Participants were four patients between the ages of 55 and 71 years who had chronic heart failure that was classified as New York Heart Association Class 3. The patients participated in the rehabilitation program two times per week for 16 weeks. Outcome measures included a six-minute walk test, a cycle ergometer test for aerobic capacity, and a quality-of-life questionnaire. Patients 1, 2, and 3 increased their aerobic capacity by 17%, 25%, and 52% respectively. Patient 4 did not complete the cycle ergometer test because of limitations associated with his pacemaker. All patients increased their 6-minute walk test distance. Patient 1 increased to 117 meters, Patient 2 increased to 66 meters, patient 3 increased to 135 meters, and patient 4 increased to 143 meters. No adverse events were reported. The Norwegian Ullevall model of cardiac rehabilitation is a novel, high-intensity interval training program. These four patients with chronic heart failure who participated in this program had improvements in physical capacity and quality of life and had no adverse events. These results are consistent with recent evidence supporting the efficacy of high-intensity interval training in people with chronic heart failure. Randomized clinical trials are needed to evaluate the clinical efficacy of this group-based high-intensity aerobic interval training program for patients with chronic heart failure. Lead author Bergita Nielsen is a Ph.D. student in the Department of Cardiology at Ullevall University Hospital in Oslo, Norway. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. For feedback on this podcast, email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626-593-7825. We look forward to hearing from you.